Hey, welcome to the Gospel Rant podcast. We're in a series called Christianity-ism versus Gospel. Still looking at justice. This will be the third part of the mini-series. So a bit of review from last time. We were speaking about the George Floyd murder trial. If you're a follower of my Forgiving Path podcast, uh, this podcast is going to sound pretty familiar uh, because it's very similar. And I usually like to do fresh podcasts on on each of my podcast sites because a lot of you listen to all three of them. Uh, But I felt that this was so important, it was worth a repeat. So Christianityism, listen, Christianityism, right, which is Christianity affected by secular humanism and deism. Christianityism cannot motivate repentance. I mean, not really. It can shame people. It can punish to change behavior, so it can do it out of fear. And like I said, shame is in its toolkit. But there are two kinds of real justice sorrow, real repentance. There's worldly sorrow. That's the Christianityism version. That comes from the world, right? So our efforts, our tools, our education system, our reasoning, our laws. And then there's godly sorrow. And guess what? That comes from God, right? Duh, Captain Obvious. Listen to Paul in 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10. Godly sorrow, right? That's the one that comes from God, brings repentance, which is a change of behavior that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow, right? The, right? the, the sorrow that comes from the world, it brings death. Look, we Christians should be all over this. I mean, this should be branding for us. I mean, not to say that we do this perfectly or have a perfect grasp on it, but oh my goodness, just the messaging of this that's just been missing for hundreds of years. And look, godly sorrow should make a difference. And it should look a lot better and feel a lot better than worldly sorrow, starting with our own lives, us personally. So review. Three points from last podcast. First of all, in spite of the racist leanings that affect so many people of color, we still have one of the best and historically one of the best justice systems that has ever been far from perfect. And it's less perfect for people of color. True. Second, it's very flawed. Not just slightly flawed, flawed, it's very flawed. As noted, and it seems so clear that one race seems to be getting far more benefits from the justice system than, than others. It's more subjective than we want to admit. It seems to give sway to the wealthy over the poor, the educated over the uneducated, whites over non-whites. So someone, we're just used to it, someone's going to get better justice, more justice than somebody else. And since we're largely secular, humanistic society and philosophy, we're subject to existing human brains, culture, habits, societal leanings, uh, uh, the food chain of haves and have-nots, and none of this is objective. And it is never truly loving of others over self, right? The mind of Christ, Philippians 2. Maybe ever. I mean, that's not even the stated goal. So there's only been one individual who actually was objective, who actually did love others over self in the highest possible sense, and that was Jesus. He's a 10, and the rest of us kind of fall on 
the spectrum in a statistic bell-shaped curve, maybe from almost zero to maybe four on a good day. And, and look, that, that's, that's optimistic. I mean, no higher than four, I, I think, compared to Jesus. And third, ongoing reforms are necessary. And yet, look, everyone, every single one of the reforms is also quite flawed. And the reforms are, like the existing flawed system, largely subjective and are shaped by current sensitivities and political powers, uh, secular humanism, deism. And by the way, I mean, even and today, the polarization that exists, I mean, people are overreacting. All of this is to say that the current secular humanistic Christianityism justice system is limited by us, by me, by you, by humanity. There is no such thing as objective justice or fair judicial process. It's all relative. It's frustrating for victims. Nobody gets the justice their brain is saying that they should get that's fair. There's no such thing as objective accountability either. I ranted about that quite a bit in the last podcast. Check it out. By the way, or anywhere near objective fair restoration, fair and perfect punishment, the system's just not capable of that, no matter what reforms are made. And by the way, let's keep making reforms. Again, just to not be misunderstood it is critical. It's important. It's good that we keep on reforming and improving the system. We keep leaning into making it as fair and equitable as possible for as many people as possible. But just saying, even if we make great progress, and the, the level of progress is limited by the subjectivity, we're nowhere near the justice that's innate in God's DNA, in God's courtroom, period. So let's definitely keep leaning into improving it, but come on. Let's admit that we have a long way to go. We're not going to get there, this side of heaven, period. And and if we we don't rely on the Holy Spirit, it's not going to change that much. All right. Again, but but, (laughs) having said all of that, I get where the secular humanists are coming from. If there is no God... If if or if there is a God and He's distanced Himself away from us, He doesn't intervene. Yes, secular humanism, the U.S. justice system is about as good as it gets. I mean, we can tweak it here and there, we can make it a little more fair, but there's always going to be people on the out. I'm I'm just saying that's that's what we do. So what we have to be over the top gracious is close to the best system. It's flawed that is close to the best system that a bunch of celestially lonely, self-focused, arrogant, defensive humans can or will do. Now, that might sound pretty Debbie Downer-ish, but it isn't. This is one of the most amazing things about Christianity. No one has more to say about real justice and fairness and accountability than us. Right on paper. And victim, let me address victims, and we're all victims, a little or a lot. God has promised you. Listen, God has promised, the God of the Bible, God, the Father, Son, and Spirit has promised you perfect and fair and accountable justice. Perfect restoration to perfect wholeness. Come on, that's not our brand to say that, but it's true. To put it differently, when you die and heaven becomes real to you, and you look back at all of the groanings of the present creation, you will see clearly, finally, just how unjust this world is and has been, in contrast to the perfect justice of God that you will then be swimming in. Our current system is just a dark, 
shadow. Uh, maybe, listen to this, a disfigured carnival mirror, right? Remember those? That's what it is, a mirror, a disfigured mirror of the justice that our brains have been demanding that was shoved, created into our psyches. So meaning, we know this at a certain level of our brain. Isn't this good news? Yeah, but you say, that's the future. What about now? I'm hurting now. I want fairness now. I want an end to racism now. I want justice and accountability now. Right. We agree. So back to a spectrum, because we find it so helpful. Uh, think zero to 10 spectrum. Zero is pure anarchy. And that doesn't exist. Right? There is no justice at all. Uh, uh, you know, kind of Darwinism, uh, survival of the fittest. And then 10 is Jesus and his justice and fairness and compassion, apart from race and sex, any other measurements you can think of, right? Now, just for laughs, let me take a stab at this. Let me put our best judicial system, ours, at a three. A bell-shaped curve, so maybe it goes up, maybe it goes up to a five or a six. I'm being gracious here. I mean, sometimes it stumbles into it. Maybe there's slam dunks, and we get it right. And we feel the euphoria of what a healthy, dynamic, fair justice system actually begins to, to look like. We should have felt a little of that. Derek Chauvin got some justice, a guilty verdict, all charges. It feels right. It, and it feels like we should c- celebrate. But there's some ifs or buts. There's not been any acknowledgement by him that he was guilty. There's no apology, no remorse, no restitution to the family. Um, And matter of fact, his legal system is pursuing loopholes that could reverse the whole process. It's nowhere near 10, right? Seven? No. Five, maybe? Momentarily? It's better than a one. So between one and five, and our brains go, that's not good enough. Is there something that we Christians can do to move the curve towards the right, towards 10? Yes. Hear me. Yes, beloved. Not perfectly. That's for heaven. Not a 10. But come on, if we move to a 6 or a 7 or 7.5, that's noticeable, particularly noticeable to those in our society that haven't been getting justice and accountability. You know what I'm talking about. All right. We do an entire lesson on this topic in our small group Bible study on forgiving others called We Messed Up. You can check that out at forgivingpath.com, gospel-app.com. So just check it out. So King Solomon of the Old Testament, reportedly humanity's wisest human, got something that you and I don't typically get. He had just finished building the great temple, the new home, humanly speaking, for God. And what happens there? According to Solomon, what did he plan on? Is it a place to worship God? Yes. Or does it also have another function? Yes. And I think you'll be surprised. He understands that it's a worship center, uh, but but it's also a courtroom where God is always there. God is always the judge, and it reflects his justice, his accountability. And by the way, he's objective. He doesn't see skin color or sex. He doesn't see socioeconomic stuff or haves and have-nots. He does not play favorites. So listen to the expectations of what God's courtroom should look like and feel like and what the judge should do and would do. So this is King Solomon, right? He prays to God that when there are official trials for crimes, humans against humans, institutions here against institutions here, held in the temple— 
he's asking that God would actually intervene and in two areas. All right. So here's what he says in First Kings 8, 31 and 32. When a man wrongs his neighbor, you can also say when an institution wrongs a person, when a man wrongs his neighbor and is required to take an oath, right, a plea, <laughs> guilty plea, not guilty plea, and he comes and swears the oath before your altar in this temple, then hear from heaven and act. Judge between your servants, condemning the guilty and bringing down on his head what he has done and declare, uh, make known the innocent not guilty, and so establish his innocence. All right, let's unpack that. Imagine with me what Solomon is asking God to do when there is a trial held in his presence in the great temple in Jerusalem. Uh, And by the way, modern, it'd be in the presence of the Holy Spirit. So, side observation, isn't this interesting? This, This is so interesting to me. We would never have a trial in our church buildings, would we? Because that would seem so strange. Because worship, a church is about worship and communion and fellowship and getting together and and being friendly. (laughs) But here in the Holy Temple of God in Jerusalem, we are led to understand that there were no doubt regular trials, judicial proceedings brought by one human being against another. And Judicial proceedings that considered such things as losses of goats or lands or reputation or security or life important. As a matter of fact, important to God and important to the worshiping community. Isn't that fascinating? Such judicial practices were actually acts of obedience. They were actually acts of worship to God. Isn't that cool? So we've got to wrap our heads around that. This is biblical. So imagine with me if... If the Bible actually affected our judicial system, (laughs) so George Floyd murdered, clearly a crime of one human being versus another. His family is distraught. They've tried the human judicial system, and they're they're not feeling justice. They're not feeling like it was fair or or there was a real accountability, and they feel helpless, beat up. Uh, dishonored, unsafe, angered, dehumanized, sad, immersed in a sense of hopelessness. Because the human courts, even though they rendered a guilty verdict on all charges, something's missing, right? George is still taken from them. There's a gap, there's a hole, and they feel like something's wrong. That's their brain. I get it. I would too. So now what? Well, again, if it were biblical system that we're dealing with, not Christianityism right, a dressed-over humanism, secularism, if it was actually more biblical Christianity, a gospel, here's what they would do. They would make an appointment with the priest for George's case to be heard before God's face, right? Almost sounds like fiction. They make their charges to God, to the judge. They present all of the evidence against Chauvin and how they're feeling, God hearing about their heart, their hurts, then Chauvin is heard from, right? Because God's fair. And there's no need for him to lie or enter a not guilty proclamation because God knows exactly what happened, right? He doesn't need the testimony. Uh, he knows what Chauvin was thinking or not thinking. But let's say he still enters a not guilty plea. He stands in the temple in the presence of the God judge and swears that he didn't kill George Floyd. 
In Solomon's example, the assumption is that the defendant had indeed wronged his or her neighbor, that he was guilty of breach and theft of lying, and now he dares to stand in front of God and swear falsely, right? Just like Derek Chauvin did. You get the scene. So Solomon boldly requests, and publicly, by the way, so everyone knows, that God, the judge himself, not just sit back and passively uh, wait until Jesus' return, but he intervenes. He does something. Solomon is expecting God to do something for his people. What? <laughs> Come on, Christians, it's time to it's it's time to be bolder. So here's what he says. God, hear both of the cases, all of the testimony, all of the evidence, and then do something. Judge your servants. All right. What does Solomon have in mind? I'm going to drill down. Condemn the guilty God. Literally, he says, wicked the wicked. Humanly speaking, so often, this is back to the subjectivity, it's hard to discern who's lying and who's telling the truth. So, God, make it obvious. Has God ever done that? Yeah, yeah, lots of cases. Second Chronicles 26, 19, King Uzziah, he disobeys God, and God strikes him with leprosy. Well, that becomes clear. Something was wrong. Or Miriam in Numbers 12, 10. Pretty clear. Miriam did something wrong, said something wrong, and God went, you are guilty and everybody's going to see it. So Solomon requested God make it clear to everyone who's guilty. And by the way, including the perpetrator. Wouldn't that be special? Wouldn't that be laugh out loud? Wouldn't that be head clearing? If God himself had pro- proclaimed Chauvin guilty, leprosy happened, or welts bro- broke out on his face, or the Pinocchio thing, right? His, no- his nose grew, and everyone saw it and went, oh, uh-oh, he's lying. How would that have felt? Good, right? Yeah. But there's more. He asked, Solomon asked that God bring down on the head of the guilty party what he or she has done. Now, I suggest that this is a euphemism for God making the guilty feel all the consequences of their crime, all the shame, all the guilt. So God, convict them to the bone. Make them feel conviction. Bring down upon his or her head what he or she has done. Declare the guilty guilty. Cause the merited punishment to fall upon him or her. God, don't let him or her get away with crime and duplicity. Bring shame and guilt to bear upon them Cause them to see, to deeply feel what they did to the victim and how wrong it was. Make them feel what you feel, God. Godly sorrow, 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 5. Can you imagine what that would have looked like if Derek Chauvin, in the middle of the trial, had been struck with heavenly guilt? This godly sorrow shoved down his throat against his will. Right, he's not asking for that. So he's been made to feel that way because God's into justice. And he falls to his knee, his knees in deep repentance. He he publicly acknowledges what he did. Man, would that have changed the tenor of the trial? Would more people have felt accountable uh, that accountability was taken into account, that there was justice? Can you imagine what the Floyd family would have felt? The encouragement, the the hope. Well, yeah, but back to Christianityism and secular humanism, 
we're not today. That would be such a microaggressor. There would be people marching in the streets that God would actually make a person feel that. We're not comfortable asking God to do this anymore. Have you ever looked at God and asked boldly with some expectation that he might answer this prayer? God, make the person who hurt me feel sorrow. Break their heart to see what they've done, what they did to me. Convict them deeply for their actions. Have you ever prayed then? Well, I look, I have. I'll, I'm not going to lie. And and listen, isn't this a microaggressor? God making someone do anything? And yet, this is a good thing. And God can and would, and only God has the objectivity to do it, and the power, by the way. And And so it seems at one level, based upon modern sensitivities, right, wokeness, that this would be rude and oppressive, that God would make anybody do anything against their will, but not to God and not to the Bible. God regularly injected godly sorrow into the brains of people who didn't feel it. By the way, I'm one of them. I became sorrowful over the the many things that I had done in in my unbelief. So God can inject, he can shove sorrow down people's throats, But by the way, it's just the flip side of God injecting a sense of being loved into the brain of a lonely person who doesn't feel it, right? God can make a person feel loved, whether they ask it or not. It's the essence of the gospel. Come on, folks, lighten up. (laughs) So God, make Derek Chauvin remorseful. Break him. Make him really see what he did. And the consequences to so many, because you commanded him and the rest of us to love those people, to honor those people, to treat them like we would treat Jesus. And he didn't. And look, God can do it. Remember, secular humanists can't do it. Secular humanism can't do it. They can only shame people or or, or cause people to be afraid, uh, you scare them into to, to doing stuff right. Christianityism, another phase of secular humanism, can't do it. And, and, and often it's just a lot of talk, right? All those things, uh, they, secular humanism, Christianityism doesn't have the power. And second, they believe often implicitly or explicitly that we're alone in the universe and God doesn't intervene. Not much. We can't expect it. And third, uh, this camp cringes at the possibility of a higher power that can do it. It's a little offensive and frightening to realize that we're not at the top of the of Darwin's food chain. I mean, I, I understand. But the good news is, the good news for the victims and victims' family is that in this case, there is a higher power who can make the perpetrator feel sorrowful, feel guilty, feel ashamed. And that higher power is more just, more fair, more anti-racist, more loving, more good than anything else here. Think of Jesus and the people, the types of people, the people treated with injustices that he attracted and found hope by his side. This is such good news. All right. Solomon, back to Solomon. He makes a similar outlandish prayer on behalf of the plaintiff victim. God righteous the righteous. That's what he says literally in the Hebrew God, publicly vindicate them, make it clear to them and to everyone that they are innocent. They're the plaintiff here. But don't stop there. God, establish their innocence. All right, let's drill down. I'm going to suggest that this is a parallel and the opposite parallel of the actions that God took to convict the defendant. So God, 
make the plaintiff, the victim, feel vindicated, feel whole, feel honored, uh, feel like there's been justice, feel like there's a person who should be treated with honor. If they were raped, God, make them feel clean and pure again, or make them feel honored and honorable again, loved and lovable again. Make them, if they were slandered, give them back their name. If they were robbed, fill their cup with some dynamic equivalence. Vindicate them. God, you make people's names great. So God, here we go. Here's a person. Put rightness, a sense of being right on the wronged party. Give them your judicial ah factor, right? When when the jury gets it right and 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 you just, everybody goes, oh my goodness, they got it right. Oh, there's hope. That's the ah factor. Remember, plaintiff, this does not negate the law's requirement that the guilty pay you back for what they did or what they took from you as evaluated by the human court. The Old Testament Leviticus case law required that the defendant pay back the loss plus a fine. So it doesn't mean everything's good. Restitution is important, and restitutions are under the authority of the human court. Solomon would get that, and it's doable by guilty defendants, and arguably for that, you don't need God to intervene. They also don't perfectly quench your thirst, not until heaven and the experience of God's perfect fullness, Ephesians 3. No, Solomon is asking God for more than this. He asked God to do on the behalf of the victim what only God can do in the here and now. God convict the heart of the guilty defendant, give them deep, alien, godly sorrow, and make the victim feel vindicated. Make them right again. Man, it's almost a fairy tale. It's so good, isn't it? Stunning. Floyd family, supporters. Solomon got it. He he understood. He was he was wise that there is a God uh, and he judges on a, on a regular basis, and he's not distant, he's not passive, he's not uncaring, he's not indifferent. In his courtroom, he interposes his will into judicial proceedings and works miracle because he loves us. It's his role, it's his passion to actively interpose, to judge his servants, to punish the guilty, and to justify the innocent. That's the idea. Right? Have we relied on him for that? This concept, again, it's got to be a little uncomfortable to modern sensibilities. First of all, that there's a God, that he intervenes, that he makes us do anything. But, oh my gosh, there's, yeah, I'm not going to repeat myself. Today, we virtually idolize our so-called free wills. So any power or person who steps on our free wills, we would say as an oppressor, um, so much of the the pedestal of our free wills was erected during the Enlightenment. You know, it's just hardly something that's hyped much at all in the in the Bible. The Bible, in contrast, is not shy to speak of God's free will by which he regularly intervenes in the affairs of man with or without our permission. It's, it's his bailiwick. He can do it. He alone knows what justice is. So he's the only one who can do it. And so when he shoves his justice down the throats of unwilling victims and plaintiffs, that's a good thing. Plaintiff victims, it's great news. God can cause the defendant, even the most stubborn, resistant, and racist of defendants, to actually begin to feel guilt and sorrow and shame. Again, wouldn't that have been something special? Wouldn't that have changed how it felt afterwards by all of us? A trial before God where Derek Chauvin breaks down in deep remorse and conviction and cries out what he did. 
And he testifies, God made him see. Wouldn't it have been something for the Floyd family to hear and see God point to Chauvin and say, guilty of all charges, so many more, including, and then he he utters a list of injustices that only he knows that are in Chauvin's hearts. And then he looks over at the plaintiff victim's family and makes them feel adored, loved, honored, honorable, uh, special people in the court. And then what if he makes them see George also experiencing his justice beyond the grave, a perfect healing justice beyond the grave? Remember, God is the God of the living and the dead. He's not done with uh, George Floyd. He's not. George Floyd is in good hands. How might those proceedings then universally have brought a greater peace, except for angry atheists and secular humanists and Christianityism that might be offended by this? It's a greater hope, and it's not perfect, um, right? There's more left for heaven, but it should be noticeable for people of all skin colors. Well, this is what we designed into the forgiving path. Sh- victim, we are giving you in nine short teaching stations, a little over two hours. That's it. You know, two and a half hours. That's it. A single experiential gospel path, the trial before God of the universe that you haven't yet experienced, that your brain's been jonesing for, right? Until now, you've been led down a path that's largely secular, humanistic, Christianityism, where you've been told or was applied that you have to do it on your own and you're stuck with the results. Move on. Aren't you tired of that? Look where it's got us, right? And and people just dump the weight on your shoulders and, and they shame you a second and third time. You just have to choose to forgive now. You have to choose to for, give up your right to justice. Choose to feel benevolence for the person who hurt you or institution who did this to you. Really? Stop it. Check out the forgiving path. I mean, you'll, you'll see something different. And honestly, how's that been going for you? How's that going for the United States? If you think it's been going well, then okay, fine. You don't need to do the path, you know? God bless America. God bless you. But for the rest of us, the 99% who are not in that much denial, welcome to the forgiving path. Check it out. Does it work? Yes, we can actually prove it. It's bookended with before and after surveys. So look, we can immediately show you where there's been movement. In, in your midbrain, over a thousand people have been through it and would say it helped dramatically. You can see some of the testimonies. Not perfectly. Again, that's for heaven, but it's noticeable. By the way, there is a fee, but a satisfaction guaranteed. We just want you to go through it. And also, we we, uh, we published two small groups on forgiving, on this new approach to forgiving. It's very interesting, provocative. They'll get dialogue going in your groups for sure. There's Engage Can't Forgive for Young Adults, and We Messed Up for Everybody. We just can't wait to hear of your experience. And those studies work in conjunction uh, with The Forgiving Path or, or, or by themselves. So do us a favor. This is a big deal. Help us get the word out to those you know you know who can't forgive. People who are still upset in the George trial a George Floyd trial. And just send them the link for this podcast and the last one so they have a context, maybe the last two. And look, alongside of each other, we can make a difference, right? All right, we'll see you in the next Gospel Rant. Take heart, child of God.
Is life feeling chaotic? I get it. I'm Rachel Wojo, host of the Untangling Life podcast. Don't miss the passionate encouragement and faith-based resources you need to help you clear your head and calm your heart. As Shell says, it feels like Rachel always knows what I need to hear. She keeps it real and is so humble. Her podcast is just the cherry on top. Enjoy Untangling Life with Rachel Wojo on lifeaudio.com or your favorite podcast app now.